0: Welcome to the Urban to Country Podcast, where we talk to outdoor enthusiasts about life, hunting, and how to make everyday epic. Hey friends, welcome back to the Urban to Country Podcast. On today's episode, I am honored to sit down with Jim Posowitz and Gail Joslin. These two are heroes of mine and have created uh, incredible change in the outdoor space. This was a really fun podcast to record with them. I know you're going to love it, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Jim and Gail. Jim, you have a way with words, so why don't you start us off by describing where we're sitting right now? Well,
1: we're sitting in a building that was built in 1910. Uh, it 's been converted through the years to many uses, uh, initially a family dwelling. Uh, I bought it from uh, donna Metcalf, lee metcalf 's widow Wow, and the Metcalfs were using it as a, uh, as a guest house, and so it's initially was two efficiency apartments with no inside stairway <coughs> and Then my son Carl who was an architect, designed the, the room we're sitting in as an attachment to it with a garage under it and a carport next to it and an uh, inside staircase, and so it made it a functional unit. It's about, uh, oh, 200 yards or less from the fire tower in, right <laughs> in the middle of Helena's slum, or I mean downtown. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's within walking distance of the Myrna Loy and the Windbag Saloon (laughs) and a few other Helena uh, landmarks.
0: Your normal haunts, right? Right. Yeah. My habitat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Gail, how's it been uh, converting this from a bachelor pad into a a normal (laughs) living space?
2: This has been our office for years. Um, We've always used the upstairs portion as an office and meeting area and, you know, gathering place and... So, t- turning it in, taking over the basement office as well. <clears throat> Jim's cold is getting around. <laughs> um, ha- it's been it's been good. I mean, no dishwasher. We had trouble with the garage door.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, oh, you, yes, you, we have, have a dish- you have washer. a dishwasher. But His name's he's Jim. He's sitting
2: over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the interesting thing for me is... Um, Looks like I'm kind of ending up my my time around this neighborhood about 100 yards from where I was born. Whoa. I was born in St. John's Hospital right no up, right there across the street. <laughs> That's
0: amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, almost 70 years later, here we are, back where we started.
0: <laughs> so you're a Helena native then?
2: Yeah. My okay. dad was a Helena native. My mother was a... Uh, import from the uh iron mine country in minnesota and she ended up in butte and so columbia Guard gardens brought them together at a dance and so you know lots of history there and my dad's wow. family kind of uh homesteaded along the rocky mountain front up in uh, the dearborn country and uh now it's on the map actually called Joslyn Creek. so
0: I know where that is. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that was named after you. Yeah. Oh, very <laughs> Not cool. Not after me, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> the family lineage. You right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fun. And my granddaughter, it's very odd when my daughter named her Jocelyn. <laughs> so the name continues. That's cool. So that's fun.
0: Yeah. Well, you kind of started already, but why don't you introduce yourself to the folks who are listening and tell us whatever you think they'd be interested to know about yourself.
2: Ah, ah let's see I was um yeah I had no intention of going to college and my father said you will go to college (laughs) (laughs) so they dumped me off at MSU on the corner and and I poked through the catalog and decided wow look at this I can study fish and I can study mammals and so I decided to go into wildlife biology and back in those days there was no telephone so I wrote my folks and said wow I found this thing I'm going to go into wildlife management my dad writes back and he says I'm not financing any $10,000 <laughs> fiasco so I wrote back and I said well I then I'm, don't think I'll be going to college so he says well you better be the best damn biologist that ever lived that's oh, awesome my God. <laughs> you
0: <can't> I think <laughs> his investment
1: paid off
2: oh uh, so it was fun to go um yeah it was good inter- entertainment so yeah,
1: expand the story a little bit.
2: Oh well, okay. I ended up going to uh, to MSU, and um, this was 1969. And back in those days, when I went to co- high school, there was a dress code. Girls always wore their, you know, dresses. Wow. We we're not allowed to wear pants to school. So I end up in 1969 going into an introductory orientation class for kids who wanted to go into fish and wildlife management, and uh, I walked into a group with 79 boys and me. Wow! I mince in there with my little <laughs> skirt and my purse. Sit down, and uh, there were like four of the professors from the wildlife curriculum there, and the head of the curriculum dr Quimby um he is concerned about so many people interested. I mean he thinks it's all going to be just lark for people, and he does and he's trying to wash out the kids right, so he's really um tough and kind of unpleasant and pointing out that most of us will be failures <laughs> <laughs> and he goes around the class and hands out a piece of paper you know he had several handouts for kids. And he'd look every single person in the eye and he'd slowly hand them the paper. (laughs) And then he'd get to me and I wasn't there. So he'd just pass over me. And that happened two or three times. And I'd raise my hand, but he wouldn't acknowledge. So there was some very generous soul sitting behind me. And I don't know who the kid was, but he'd raise his hand. And he'd say, "Uh, we need one more here. And then he'd give it to me. I'm sure that kid got x out right away. <laughs> right. Yeah, that
0: didn't make the best impression.
2: <laughs> no, so anyway, long story short, we get to the end of the thing, and we disband, and I'm one of the first people up to the podium to ask a question, and I was the last person standing, and the professor picks up his books and papers, and he turns, and he walks towards the door, and I said, wait a minute, I have a question. And he just stops with his back to me, and he's talking away from me and he says you are wasting my time you're wasting the time of this university and he pivots on his heel and he says and I suggest you find a curriculum more suitable to your gender
0: oh wow
2: so I said well that may be so but I still have a question he says well go ask the other department and he walked away wow and then even after six years in the curriculum when it came time to defend my thesis, he wouldn't He wouldn't come into the room. Really? No, wouldn't come into the room. But they sat me at the end of the long table in Lewis Hall, which faces the door with all the professors lined up on each side of the table asking questions for your defensive thesis. And he and the door was open, and Dr. Quimby would walk back and forth in front of that door, <laughs> as I sat at the end of the table. I'm going, wow, this is... Deep-seated, yeah. whatever it is. And I give him credit now because I said, you know, he, right from the beginning, he toughened me up. And I said, there is no way. It just made me mad. Yeah. So So wow. we ended up uh, getting through. And I was, I was not the very first person through the fish and wildlife management curriculum. That was a woman who went through as a fisheries biologist. Okay. And um, then I, I was the first undergraduate girl in wildlife, and then I, was, then I got my degree as a master's with the big sky development and how that would fit, influence elk. But that had to be under zoology because they wouldn't allow a woman to have an animal project. It had to be a vegetation project. If you wanted to study um, uh, skunk brush or ceanothus volutinus or something like that, you got could study the plants, but you couldn't get a, an animal project.
0: Wow. So you so were really so. a pioneer for all the women that came through that program after you.
2: Well, I didn't think about it that way, but I guess it was a start. It was a start.
0: Well, I mean, it's got to yeah. start somewhere. and yeah. I mean, someone... I think about that and someone might have come through that program, had it not been you, as as uh tough as you were and able to take that kind of uh sexism and, and bigotry, if someone else had come through they might have got turned away. Yeah. You know, but you kinda laid the found the foundation for someone else to come through, so wow, that's amazing. I didn't know the history there.
2: Yeah. Actually my my roommate and and uh best friend, godmother of my kids now she was the next person to come in and she went all the way through fish and wildlife but she was she was mortified of, of the meanness, yeah. you know. But at the time she was not gonna leave either. She was too stubborn and she <laughs> so we we, we, su- we were supportive of each other. So That's amazing. Good. Yeah.
0: Sounds like a good friendship.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I called her this morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: and Jim? Oh, do you wanna There's
2: a ask footnote something? to the story. Okay.
1: Why don't you tell it?
2: I don't <coughs> know. What did I tell me?
1: Dale's first project out of graduate school was snaring, collaring, and tracking grizzly bears.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> and my punchline is so the most common words in this household. Are yes, dear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, I, I can understand that. I, knowing Gail, that makes sense. Jim, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of do a similar introduction to your background.
1: Uh, fighter, lover, ballroom dancer, friend of the working girl.
0: That sounds r- just about right to <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Uh,
1: I was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And I went through high school years there. Sheboygan is one hour's drive from Packer Stadium. My father, who was at one point a professional athlete, but later in life ran a gas station. I had a grandfather, and he had a brother, and then I had two uncles, all of whom ran saloons, which meant that my father would organize out of that clientele, a busload of fans to go to every Packer home game as I was growing up. That's very cool. And in my senior year, we played Green Bay East High School, and they didn't have their own football field, so they played in the old city stadium, which was the same field the Packers were using at the time. Wow. So for an 18-year-old kid, that was pretty heady stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Not only that... uh we had a relatively porous line. Of course, you were playing 60-minute football then, both ways. Uh, we had helmets, but we didn't have face guards. And you can tell. <laughs> so We're doing a
0: radio program here, so you don't have to oh, worry about it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> At any rate, I was making a lot of tackles. Nice. And it was one of the few stadiums we played in, our fields we played in, that had a public address system. I mean, this is 1952. And at one point, the announcer said, tackle again by (laughs) Pazawoods. They heard that in Montana. And I got recruited to come to Bozeman to go to school. And at the time, I was taking uh, high school aptitude tests to find out what you were suited for. And I had a big interest in hunting and fishing in the outdoors. And and, uh, it was all self-motivated and self-taught because there was no family history of those activities at post-depression years when I was growing up. And besides the wildlife at that niche of the woods was totally depleted. But at any rate, uh, I was taking an aptitude test and one day the counselor was visiting with me, and said, uh, "I studied your score here in this aptitude test, but there's no uh, no profession uh, available for hermits. Why don't you go into fish <laughs> and wildlife?" <laughs> That's kind of the same thing. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's not exactly true. The exact truth was I was sitting in the bleachers one night with the basketball coach, and he said, What do you want to do, posse? And I said, Oh, uh, conservation, uh, fish, and wildlife, stuff like that. And he knew the coach at Montana State. Mm-hmm. And so I had a uni- or a, an institution that fit the size that I thought I was capable of playing in college and uh, that had a curriculum I had an interest in. Hmm. And Bozeman was trying to upgrade their team. And so they invited uh, a re- the recruitment from the old industrial belt. And that's where Montana State and I kind of made contact. And then I went out and tried out for the Bobcats in '53. And in 1956, we uh, we beat the Grizzlies in Missoula. That nice. hadn't happened in Missoula since 1902. Oh wow! When Theodore Roosevelt was president. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> now some of the interim games were played in Butte as a neutral ground. Ah yes. For a lot of years, but the Cats were chronically beat by the Grizzlies until we turned that corner in my senior year and that particular team went undefeated and also won a national championship.
0: Wow, I didn't know that.
1: That's why I told you. (laughs) (laughs) That's what this (laughs) podcast is supposed to do. That's (laughs) right, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So now you got our two stories. I started with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Yeah. in... um, 1961 as full-time. I'd done some seasonal work prior to that with with the state as a student. I worked there 32 years steady, and they finally relieved themselves of me, (laughs) at which point I founded, uh, along with Gail, Orion, the Hunters Institute. And then the interim, as my later years in Fish and Game, I was also... Uh, moonlighting is the executive director of the Cinnabar Foundation, which is a conservation philanthropy that helps support uh, non-government organizations working on fish, wildlife, and environmental issues. Okay. Other than that, why well, I've been sitting around? That—that
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. Anybody that knows you knows that you are not just uh, sitting around. You're—you're uh, you're two of the most busy people i know i mean <laughs>
1: i think that's true <laughs>
0: yeah
2: we're just getting older and it's yeah. all going faster <laughs>
0: uh, well one of the things i wanted to ask gail is uh first of all do you, i'm fairly certain that you still go hunting uh, every year when and what what's your favorite game to hunt
2: oh i i ah, that's hard i really like yeah, they're different, you know. I, I love to hunt antelope and elk, but deer is the staple. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, uh, antelope and elk, yeah.
0: You I guys have some amazing antelopes here in your home. I mean, there's, yeah. there's some really great ones.
2: There are. Yeah. Um, we've just been very, very blessed. We're so lucky to live in Montana. The things that we get to do here is just amazing, and... So I think we both spend most of our time trying to make sure that this landscape continues to be able to sustain critters and and hunting opportunity. I mean, we've got the longest hunting seasons of any place in the United States here in Montana and yeah. and that's because we do have for the most part we've got the landscape that can support the critters and we've got the agencies That are trying to do the right thing with a lot of input from, you know, the advocacy groups who are making sure that the landscape is well-managed.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a question for both of you. You can tag team this or each answer if you have different answers. But you touched a little bit on conservation and how we have, you know, a really good conservation ethic here in Montana. But what do you think the the greatest concern for conservation is currently? I mean, there's been a lot of battles that have been fought. But today, what's the, what's the big concern from your perspectives?
2: I think there's too much going on in people's lives. And so that it becomes apathy where they are not out and engaged and in the field to start to see what's going on and to really uh, participate and making sure that their special places are are maintained i do think that i mean there's so much to do out there and everybody's connected to their their devices Yep. so uh getting out into the wild i mean this nature deficit disorder i think really does exist and the more people are out there the more alive you feel but it seems like it's hard to break away from the everyday things that you get used to and Get out there to really appreciate and then defend what needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think our biggest immediate problem is a lack lack of appreciation for what it took to deliver the present condition to our generation. Mm. And there are very few places on the planet Earth where the average person, if he or she chooses to be a hunter, can be. Almost all through human history, once we came civilized, the amenities of outdoor uh, hunting and fishing became provis- uh, the privileges of the, the the rulers or the wealthy or those who held the power and this uh, desire to Capitalize and commercialize on wildlife never goes away, and if you look at uh, U.S. history, the whole issue of whether who would own the game in fish and uh, in the new world uh, democracy—it's not mentioned in any of our founding documents: the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. Fish and wildlife—it has no mention. It only took 66 years after the Declaration of Independence for that issue to get argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1842, the Supreme Court said that the fishing, or the the wild things, fish, wildlife, and water, that were basically held in trust by the king because the people declared themselves to be sovereign they became the holder of that public trust in fish and wildlife. It became the people's fish and the people's game. And in that 1842 and some subsequent court decisions, we crossed this barrier that in the new world democracy, fish and wildlife would belong to the people. The king's deer became the people's game. Right. Now, that was a long time ago, sort of. Uh, That first court case was 1842. That was 16 years before Theodore Roosevelt was born. 16 years after Theodore Roosevelt died, I was born. (laughs) Now, that's the full length of this experiment in the new world democracy, whether a cultural, social, uh, environmental amenity Can be held by, used by, taken care of, all by the people, and not by people of privilege, people of property, or people of wealth and power. That struggle goes on to this day. You could see it through the last campaign. Yep,
0: absolutely.
1: (laughs) And it gets intensified. Now, initially, what that meant, or what that led to, was the total decimation of wildlife. Um, Montana was a prime example, and and I think Montana was a place where this conservation ethic basically took root, Mm. not only for Montana, but for the entire nation. But uh, in in August of 1883, North Dakota had their last commercial slaughter of buffalo, one month later, Theodore Roosevelt shows up to try to find and shoot a buffalo. He hunts for more than a week looking, finds a one lone bull and shoots it, which was kind of dastardly, but nonetheless it led <laughs> to his conservation epiphany. And in one of his writings, two years later, in 1885, he wrote of a ranchman who had made a journey across northern Montana. It was described as a journey of a thousand miles. So you're looking at roughly from the North Dakota border to within view of the Rocky Mountain front and Glacier National Park. And then Roosevelt wrote to use the ranchman's own words, I was never out of sight of a dead buffalo and never in sight of a live one.
0: Wow, that's chilling.
1: Yeah. Now that was 1885. Now, if you look for the conservation ethic, Mm -hmm. you can look uh, into the, for example, one place to find it is the first territorial legislature. That was 1864. James and Granville Stewart were uh, delegates. They put through legislation to restrict fishing to a hook and line in 1864 as a means of conserving the fishery resource. That was 12 years before Custer died at the Little Bighorn. Wow. So it's in the people. You can spot it through history. Yeah. And when you put the history together, it presents a most remarkable story. And the problem I have with the story is I had to find it Years on my way out of fishing game. I went through two degrees in college, in fish and wildlife management. Never got any history, any philosophy, any any ethics. Uh, never got the story of of the profession I was going to become a part of. I mean, their thing was strictly teach 'em biology, and mm. that was important. I wouldn't diminish the sure. need for yeah. that. But we were completely ignorant relative to how we had got to this point in the evolution of a society that is relatively modern. You know, we haven't been at this all that long. And like the analogy I used with Theodore Roosevelt's uh, lifespan right, yeah. in it. And uh, so that it is still experimental. But we went from the boneyard of a continent that he described... To where we have deer in our cities, bears in our orchards, and goose droppings on every golf show in Montana. <laughs> That's an accomplishment. Yeah. But how that was done needs to be recorded and told because in Montana, when you study Montana history in the traditional fashion, what you learn about is the guys who left us the Berkeley pit, and you never hear of the guy who left us the scapegoat. Right. And we need to make a educational adjustment because there's a lot of beauty in that. And a, we should take a great sense of pride in knowing uh, the role that our state played in that whole saga.
0: With everything that you two talked about, those those challenges that we're facing, how do we go about combating those, the apathy and the the lack of historical context for what we have here? Because um, you're right, you're both right. People are totally apathetic, and they they don't appreciate where we came from and what we have. And that's a generalization. But the the problem is that generalization is becoming more and more of a reality for the majority. So how do we how do we combat these two problems we're facing?
2: I think it's education, of course, and but uh, it has to be hands-on experience and. I think more of us who are dedicated to our landscapes and love this place need to take folks with them out into the field. And I am have only done that a few times. I should expand that a little bit. But I use the example of uh, my daughter is working on a project in Libby, which. which focuses on the fourth graders, and they do a winter treks uh, session, and they go out weekly for a whole for for several weeks at a time, um, and the kids have no have had no exposure, and they love it, and they they just eat it up, and you initiate that spark of interest and curiosity for them to go out and. If they know that that is a snowshoe hare track and that is a red squirrel track and they go out into the woods, they feel more comfortable. They feel like they (laughs) know something and they're open to learning more. So I think we have to have more hands-on opportunities for people who don't otherwise have any uh, skills out there and are a little timid about going out but are still interested. Yep. So I think that's my perspective from a real today point of view. And, of course, Pauses' approach goes back to historical education and bringing it to the present, right? I mean, wouldn't you like to see this well, sure. taught and in schools? It,
1: and I tend to look back at my own life experience. You know, I grew up wanting to be a hunter, wanting to be a fisherman, and wanting to be a trapper. And a lot of, you know, 90% fantasy, 10% reality, and all that stuff. I get to Montana in August of 1953. In January, I've been here six months. <clears throat> There's an extended deer season in the Bridger Mountains. I borrow a gun, I go up into the Bridger Mountains, and I shoot my first deer. How old are you? Pardon? How old were you?
2: 19, maybe?
1: Oh, I was 18, 18 years old. I would be, in two months, I'd be 19. So I'm 18 years old. I go borrow the gun, go up just north of the M on the end of the Bridger Mountains, and I shoot a doe deer, and then I ask myself, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> But the truth was, you know, I knew enough to disembowel it and all that. But I had no idea, A, why well, I could be the hunter, why the Bridger Mountains were public land, and why that, why, well, that, why that deer population of the Bridger Mountains had been so amply restored by the time I showed up. Right. That we had to have an extended season on them just to hold the numbers in check. I knew none of that stuff. And by the time I graduated six years later with a master's degree, I still didn't know any of those answers. (laughs) And that, to me, was tragedy A. Uh, Tragedy, or the good news was, all through Montana history, from when James and Granville Stewart ride in, pass a prohibition on taking, killing fish, any method other than hook and line, And what my mind said was, well, of course, we're being settled by miners, and they all have dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) When I looked into it a little, one step deeper, I found out that legislation was passed before dynamite was invented. Oh, wow. Exactly. Oh, wow moment. Yeah. Then you start thinking, okay, why did they do that? because they were saining fish to feed people in the fish markets and stuff like that at the time. But that was uh, 12 years later, Custer died at the Little Bighorn. And that's kind of an interesting year, 1876, our nation's first centennial. The buffalo hide shipments downriver from Fort Benton alone peak at a record 80,000 hides that year. Oh, my goodness. From Fort Benton alone. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt is a freshman at Harvard that year. Marcus Daly takes his first mining claim in Butte that year.
0: Wow, there's a lot going on.
1: A lot going on in 1876, you know. But the fact is, among that list of interesting things was fish conservation. Yeah. Taking care of the natural resources. And the stewards were true to that for you know, most of their life, all their lives. And then you find out that through Montana history, off and on, people keep popping up at critical moments just out of the population at large. Uh, ehlers Koch was the first ranger to go into the Sun River in 1905. The Forest Service was brand new. Theodore Roosevelt Was in the midst of setting aside uh, 230 million acres as conservation lands, forests, wildlife refuges, monuments, all that stuff. And so that first ranger in the Sun River country, and the wildest thing we've got left right now, he rode for 30 days in 1905 and 30 days in 1906. With his rifle on his saddle. And he said, with the exception of one mountain goat, never saw or got a shot at a single big game animal. Wow. Two years of hunting in the wildest country that was left. That's how we had liquidated the wildlife for its commercial value. And the restoration begins with Roosevelt, of course, setting aside land for that purpose then Franklin Roosevelt comes along and, uh, when I'm one year old and passes the Pittman-Robertson Act, or two years old, I guess. But at any rate, uh, to fund the wildlife restoration and this wonderful abundance we've got. Uh, and all through history, there are critical points, like in 1963, when uh, the Fish and Game campaign to stop the channelizing of trout stream, uh, streams, uh, because we were on the cusp of building the interstate system. The interstate through Wolf Creek Canyon was under construction, and there was no prohibition to just putting a bulldozer in the stream and straightening her out so you could have cheaper highways. And that battle was fought and won, and, and it was done twice once in '63. It was written initially to expire because the politicians weren't sure they could trust the fishing game to not shut down all highway construction. (laughs) (laughs) By 65, they learned that we could, and the law passed a second time. On both occasions, that law was signed by Tim Babcock, who was our Republican governor at the time, and a trucker who had an obvious interest in interstate highways. Right. But he saw the higher value in in preserving the trout stream, signed that bill on two separate occasions. The first time it went through in 63, it was nip and tuck. The second time it went through in 65 to be made permanent, there was one single dissenting vote. And there was a contractor from White Sulphur Springs named Elmer Shy, And we were one vote shy of unanimous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is irony right there.
1: Our history is littered with those glorious stories. Just like on the uh, Sun River, you know, when all this elk recovery is occurring. Yep. There's a guy put an ad in the newspaper for machine gunners to come out and shoot elk off his property.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> and uh, the guy eventually poaches one elk, the fishing game busts him. The people formed a Sun River Conservation Council in and around Augusta Shoto. They come up with the recommendation to buy winter game ranges for the elk coming out of the mountains. When the Sun River game range came available, two of those guys... Uh, Tom Selt, a bookstore operator and writer from Great Falls, and Carl Malone, a rancher from Shoto, put up five grand out of their personal pocket to hold the deal so the fishing game could go through the process of buying it. Wow. Right.
0: That's very cool.
1: All through Montana history, that shows up. And as these generations start to rotate, too much of that is being lost. So in nineteen or no twenty fourteen, we th- put together the Montana Outdoor Hall of Fame to start catching those stories. And uh, on December first, not too long from now, we're going to have the induction of the third class. And in that process, you know, people like Cecil Garland who gave us the scapegoat uh, surface. And uh, along with uh, this year, 16 others; last year, 14 dozen or so on the first class. But at least we're starting to gather some of the stories, and you are doing exactly the same thing with this, which is critically important that this somehow have a custodial place to live while we get our orientation. Back to these things we value the most,
0: I agree, and that's one of the main reasons I decided I wanted to do this was so that we could record and share stories that that are crucially important to inspiring people to becoming involved in conservation because we're we're just not reaching people the same way we used to, and so new media like a podcast is a great way to reach out and 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 get a hold of those people. Um, I didn't grow up interested in conservation. But when I moved to Montana, I had someone that introduced me to hunting and fishing in the outdoors, and that sparked that interest. And if if this can do that for someone else, I think it's well worth it. And I, I think it's worth noting that you are part of the Montana Outdoor Hall of Fame, Jim. And, uh, they're, he they're he initiated out. it, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what happened there was in 2012, I was invited down to do the keynote address, to the Wyoming Outdoor Hall of Fame Uh and I did and I thought well I went through all the people that were inducted and everything like that and I thought holy mackerel we can do a a much grander story right (laughs) yes and uh, found immediate positive reaction from uh, Bruce Wittenberg at the Historical Society and other people in the conservation movement and uh we just launched her
0: yeah and it's it's been great i think that the reaction and everyone has really jumped on board with the montana outdoor hall of fame so i i tip my hat to you for helping get the ball rolling on that that's uh that's
1: huge see all i did though was a look through the window
0: that's all it takes sometimes somebody has to get it yeah
1: really appreciate something look at what i was looking at in there yeah Look at those guys. Look at Don Aldridge and just realize what he did. Found one of the you know first executive director of the Montana Wildlife Federation. Yep. And uh, he worked for the Montana Power Company. And and he was head of the Wildlife Federation when we were locked in combat over energy development on the on the coal fields. Yeah. And those guys are the heroes.
2: Yeah. And those stories now are being collected through the Outdoor yep. Hall of Fame, correct? And are they are they out there on the web somewhere where people can go and look at each person's story?
1: Yeah, I think they're, uh, and to find them, you'd go to the Montana Outdoor Legacy Foundation. Yep. And they would lead you to the, the, the Montana Outdoor Hall of Fame. But it is now... Uh, I guess independently created under its own uh, uh, corporate identity, but we're still linked to Montana Outdoor Legacy Foundation as one on the steering committee and things of that nature.
0: Yep. So Montana Outdoor Legacy Foundation is helping to kind of transition Montana Outdoor Hall of Fame to its own entity. Right. And so the goal would be eventually for it to be its own its own entity, have its own website, have its own housing for all these historic pieces that they're putting together so big things coming up for the outdoor hall of fame here in the next couple years it's uh it's a good time to be involved in it what are some of the things that we have going right for us what are some of those some some things that that we're doing well that that people should know about
1: you ask that on a bad morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did. I did. We've got the,
0: the uh the midterm election results coming in, so maybe that is a bad question, but well let's focus on the
1: positive. <laughs> that takes a little more thought because I thought we'd win one eighty six.
2: And you probably should describe one eighty six.
0: Yeah, let's
1: talk
2: about one eighty six. Initiative one eighty six.
1: Well, one eighty six would uh require that anybody getting a permit to mine guarantee that there will the public won't get stuck with perpetual pollution abatement. And
0: Can you break that down a little bit, too? Because I understand what that means, but someone else might not know what that means. Well,
1: what that means is the Berkeley pit is toxic. We do not have a plan that will clearly clean that up. And the water level in the Berkeley Pit uh, continues to rise, and it will eventually start pooching out into groundwater uh, aquifers and uh, have to be treated.
2: So you're talking about basically wherever poisonous water is coming out of all of these uh, old mines, uh, those pretty much are grandfathered in, but the new uh, permits would be required to assure that there would be no permanent perpetual treatment requirements right and that seemed to have been a very logical thing that people would want to have pure clean water and not be polluting it with cadmium zinc lead everything that comes out of mines but um apparently the mining industry has had a big influence on how Yep. How this initiative went, and it's well, really the irony surprising. of
1: that mining industry's counterattack to the to the ballot initiative is they relied entirely on the environmental victories of the nineteen sixties and seventies, which they fought bitterly at the time. Yeah, <laughs> and now they're embracing them, and and there's a there's a fragment of truth there. We do have a pretty tough set of standards. Yep. But the fact is we do not have the social or cultural resolve to guarantee that those standards are met in a, the perpetuity context. Right. And that's what I 186 was trying to strengthen. Yep.
2: Yeah, and I come from a my background is uh miners. They were all poking holes in the ground and trying to make a living and and they've done, you know, they did. They brought their families to Montana, and that's how come we're here. Yep. And so that's a good thing. You've got to honor the individuals, but at the same time recognize that, <laughs> yeah, my grand grandfather died of being in the deep, deep mines in Butte. I mean, he was sick, and that's how he died finally was from all of the uh, – lung issues and problems that he had. And I think that we just need to make sure that our environment can sustain us. We used to yeah. have this really good uh, moniker within Fish, Wildlife, and Parks that said, uh, and maybe, pause, you can help me with this a little bit, but it said, a, a livable environment for wildlife is a quality environment for man. Right, yeah. Um, And for some reason... We need to bring that back we because do. that's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The way I described it, somebody asked me what it, what I186 was and what it was all about, and I, what I said was, well, you remember when your mom used to say, "It's your room, clean it up." That's basically what I186 was. It said, "If you make a mess, you clean it up." And, and that just seems pretty logical.
2: Or you prevent the worst things from happening
0: out too. there. I yep. mean,
2: you weren't probably allowed to, you know, build bombs in your room and right. <laughs> have, have bad stuff going on in there. Well, you,
0: I mean, you don't know. You don't know what my childhood was like. Yeah. So, <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so yeah, not a, not a great... Not a great day for conservation. There's some some challenges ahead for sure, but what are some of the positive things that we have uh, going for us right now?
2: You know, I think another historical context that brings it into the current has to do with so many really, really good Republican leaders that we've had in this state in the past that honestly addressed... The The issues, and of course, Jim was involved back in those days of the uh, legislature when um, they there was some real cooperative things to to make sure Montana did the right thing. You used the example of Governor Babcock signing the highway bills that were all very progressive
1: well, that's true, Governor Babcock also signed a letter in support of the scapegoat. And, uh, on, you know, in the political theme here, when Cecil Garland saw a bulldozer unloaded at the head of the Blackfoot River to start building a road from the head head end of the travel route up the Blackfoot through that wa- Lincoln backcountry, it was called, then, and, and to come out on the Dearborn, he called his congressman, who was Jim Batten, and Jim Batten was a conservative Republican.
2: And actually that road would have penetrated what has become the Lincoln scapegoat.
1: Exactly. Batten calls the regional forester and says, I want 30 days to study this situation. The regional forester makes a huge mistake. He says, Congressman, you don't have 30 days, to which he... heard in reply, I got damn better well after <laughs> <days."> <laughs> He got his 30 days and that road was never built and that bulldozer went back on the load boy, low boy and, and hauled out of there. And now we got the scapegoat wilderness.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's very cool.
1: One man and a receptive po- politician doing what is in the best interest of Montana. And, uh, We need to get that rejuvenated. And at that time, there were a number of progressive uh, Republican legislators, et cetera, on environmental issues. The Montana Environmental Policy Act was shepherded through and written by George Darrow, who was a Republican state legislator and a petroleum geologist. But he could see the value and beauty of the Beartooth Plateau. Yeah. Same with uh, Harrison Fagg, who fought the Hard Rock Reclamation Act through uh, in that same time period. <laughs> he was a Republican. So uh, they weren't so ideologically brain-dead at that time. They could think their way through something that was obviously good for Montana, didn't rely on party ideology, and didn't run through the electoral process like a bunch of lemmings (laughs) we need to get that back (laughs)
0: that's quite the visual (laughs) oh man uh so one one thing i was thinking about as i don't remember which one of you said but one one thing oh i think it was jim when you were talking about educating future generations and and helping them see the context Gail, what's been the greatest lesson you've learned from your career and life that you've had in the outdoors?
2: Whoa! <laughs> uh, or a
0: big a big lesson.
2: Um, I think the it's after going through college and then I thought I was going to be in the field in the woods. I would hang out with the critters. The big lesson is if you really care about issues, you are engaged with people Mm. and you are understanding their points of view, but explaining what needs to be understood by folks in order for them to appreciate, uh, issues and, uh, most of us who go into Fish and Wildlife were in that hermit mode. They <laughs> not really want to deal with the people, you know. <laughs> the people are the hard part. They it's are the, really hard part. the hard part. It's really the hard part. I have to say that when I was, I uh, retired from Fish, Wildlife, and Parks about 11 years ago, and the last assignment I got, I really didn't want it. <laughs> it was... To be engaged and to actually write the Helena City of Helena Deer Management Plan, mm. and so I complained to my superiors and says I don't want to do it, and they said, "Well, guess what? You're going to do it." So <laughs> I I did, and I ended up going to the meetings and the the groups and. I actually learned a lot from that. It was a good process. Um that is one of the better processes that I had been through uh and it and you learned how people c- think and that they can be educated with facts they're they're thoughtful and they will make some adjustments in how they think. And so I think that's that's the most important thing i guess that i have learned it's a hard one because that means you must stay engaged
0: right yeah
2: um so we are he and it, the more you learn the more responsible you feel to participate because you do have experience and right. so we have to try to get more folks to understand and appreciate what we have. Um, on the other hand, I think those, the groups have evolved into something that you hear a lot about called collaborative groups. And those, I believe, are being fully manipulated and not necessarily doing the right thing for the resource because what's happening a lot of the time is individual slots on these collaborative groups are being designed so whoever's got control of the group can design the group so that you get to the answer they want and that's not a fair process and it leaves out the public and so i think the public feels disenfranchised when these groups come together make decisions and those decisions are adopted by the agencies people the people in as a whole need to stay engaged and not drop off the participation scale so i i can't say that that's a real enlightening view of where (laughs) we're going but i do think that that if you care about montana you're you're going to be engaged
0: absolutely yeah jim what's the biggest lesson you've learned
1: well, it's almost the same thing. Exactly the same lesson, I learned it a different way. <coughs> Early in my career, I went up to uh, Glasgow to be the fish manager there, <coughs> and ran into a, a friendship, and the guy talked me into joining the Glasgow Helena or Glasgow Wrangler Kiwanis Club. Okay. So I joined the local service club, and. In time, I realized what happened there was I became something other uh, than an alien from the f- government bureaucracy <laughs> or Planet Green within that community. I started to become part of the community. And when I moved to Helena, he talked me into the same guy. He, he became my hunting and fishing buddy for, through the process both in Glasgow and later in Helena. Uh, he was an attorney, Bill Sternhagen, and he talked me into joining the Helena <laughs> And One night, I was taking a crew of Iowa public TV people down the Missouri River when we were fighting the Corps of Engineer dams down there, mm-hmm. and I got back to the Grand Union Hotel in Fort Benton. This was the old style. And there was a note pinned on my door. And it says, call Bill Sternhagen no matter what time of the day or night. Oh. So here's a personal family friend, a lawyer, a hunting buddy, and uh, needs to talk to me. Mm -hmm. So I run down the end of the hall. There was only one phone per floor in the hotel at the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little different today. And he says, oh. Jim, I'm the nominating chairman for the Helena Kiwanis. Would you be the second vice president? <laughs> 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 I said, Bill, anything. <laughs> you know, I thought, who in the family's gotten run over, you know, or whatever. <clears throat> and so I became, eventually, the president of the Helena Kiwanis Club, which is something from being the hermit on Planet Green. Yep and that was a big lesson there to become a part of the community. We both belong to the local Rotten Gun Club. We both belong to the Wildlife Federation. You know, we both belong to a whole list of other conservation-oriented NGOs, and I think that's incredibly important because you are something other than this alien, and yep. you have a chance to talk to people because you know their name and they may know yours. And uh, there's too many in our profession, I guess, that went the isolation route. And the ones we remember and the ones who are remembered historically are those who broke out of that pattern. They weren't content to just sit in the cabin in the woods and, and pound out their reports. Right. And the irony is all through our college training, at least through mine. They you know, they pound the scientific objectivity into your brain. And then you leave your emotions out of everything you're doing. And you send your data to the decision makers, whoever they are. I don't think that's good enough in a democracy. And the way I sum it up in a bumper sticker in a bumper sticker is it's important to care yeah and that's why we got into the profession in the first place we're taught to isolate that caring and those of us who discard that in time learn if you are going to make it actually happen you have got to mix in the broader sector of American democracy
0: absolutely and, I mean, you two are a great example of that. You both have been highly engaged since your beginning of your careers in making sure that we all get to enjoy the incredible lands that we have in Montana. Um, you both have done a lot. Is there something that you look back and you feel especially proud of that you were able to accomplish or maybe you're still working on?
2: <laughs> My answering machine is talking so yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll let her quit talking huh I didn't know that would happen anyway uh, there's so a voice
0: out of the abyss <laughs> yes
2: it was just a voice out of the abyss <laughs> uh, mother, mother <laughs> <brought you. laughs> well, I thought I had that thing turned off I oh
0: it, it is all good okay yeah so what do you What do you look going to look
2: back? Re- rephrase that because it kind sure
0: of yeah you both have accomplished so much and, and you've done a lot of good in your lives w- is there something that you look back on and you feel especially proud of or that you think was significant that you were able to accomplish?
1: I don't
2: know. I mean... I'm asking
0: you to brag here. I know that's hard.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: we G- <laughs> Jim, that <laughs> Jim, I'm way better at it. <laughs> uh,
2: well, I know the the professional thing that I worked on and coordinated about 35 other wildlife biologists from across the state was uh, called a project by the Wildlife Society, the Montana Chapter of the Wildlife Society called the Effects of Recreation on Rocky Mountain Wildlife. Mm. and we put together a compendium of literature uh, and we found people in with expertise in various components and put this document together and built a bibliographic database that people could research for different species, for different issues. At the time, this was back, and it was published in 1999. And it was uh, actually didn't get actually published till 2000, but it's dated 99. And um, we didn't address the issue of mountain biking uh, at the time. We addressed uh, jet skis and... Uh, lots of snowmobiling activity and lots of motorized recreation. And I think that that was a very good uh, effort. And we received a recognition from um, the Wildlife Management Institute. And that's what that pintail duck up there with a plaque on it is about. It's And it has to do with the fact that we provided a resource that was valuable across the nation. And so we got, you know, acknowledged for that effort. And I know that the local chapter now is trying to expand on that to some degree. And I hope they do because we have issues that are that are new issues yep. that need to be addressed when it comes to wildlife and what they need. And uh, so often anymore, people are into... Uh, the extreme sports, the adrenaline rushes, and the things that just drive them, make them unaware of the consequences that they might be having on the surroundings that they're doing these activities in. Sure. So, um, I don't know, maybe I can gear up and run out again with a (laughs) charge forward (laughs) and address these other issues and talk about them again. Um, So that was a good one. I've also taken a few people out for the very first experiences they've ever had in the woods. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, I should do more of that. Um, I'm a little slower now, but I still get out there and do that. And one gal we took out managed on her very first hunt to shoot a buck whitetail. (laughs) Wow. So it was pretty exciting for her and for us. That's cool. Providing the experience and the context for it to happen in. Yeah. So that was fun. Yeah. And I also uh, tried, and I still think there's an opportunity for a project through the state. Um, This was back in the 90s as well. I pushed a project called the Diana Project where people... Uh, especially they were were trying to recruit women and children into the hunting community, and there are landowners out there who don't want to be inundated with the general hunting masses. Mm -hmm. But I believe there are places that they would allow uh, well-trained, first-time hunters to have an opportunity to hunt, and the intent was to bring those landowners and, in the process really educate these landowners who are new to Montana and what Montana's about. And I think that there's an opportunity there for landowners to learn as well as the new introductory hunters. Yeah. And I, I love it. That's very think cool. that would be a very good thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's so important to get people involved. in. Yeah. Even if they don't become lifelong hunters, just get them <coughs> out hunting once and kind of expose them to what it's all about and, and what, that, uh, what that does for conservation and, and what that means for, for the outdoors. Mr. Posowitz? Yes. What's the, uh, the thing that you're most proud of? You've got a picture.
2: But Let's, you can't, I mean, this is also I, radio. I'll,
0: I'll <laughs> describe it. So we've got a, a young lady here who's holding a, a beautiful fish. You want to tell us about?
1: That? That's my granddaughter. That's the Big Hole River. That's one very large brown trout. That is. And the face on the edge of that photo is my son. And at one time, when he was growing up, we were engaged in a big battle on the Big Hole River. County wanted to straighten the channel in a few places, and we were resisting that. And uh, they wanted to dam the Big Hole at one time. And and at one time, we were stuffing it full of hatchery trout. And there was a huge battle that had to be fought to go to wild trout management, which produced that trout that my granddaughter caught. And you can tell from the expression on her face that that wasn't something her dad caught. That's something she caught. Uh, And those kind of moments are kind of golden, (laughs) Yeah. but they're real. And when you try to you know pick the top one it's pretty hard. I mean what my brain was sorting through is uh a project that I later in life had in mind was to build a museum that held the cornerstones for unbuilt dams and there'd be High Cow Creek, and there'd be Fort Benton, and there'd be Reikley, and there'd be Allenspur, and there'd be Glacier View, and there'd be Spruce Park, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of that, none of those unused cornerstones wound up in that museum by accident. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, in any one of those campaigns, you are a person becomes a part of a larger group of people that have uh, decided to take on the issue. If you look for big events, I think the prevention, the prevention of the North Central Power Study in Southeast Montana in the late nineteen seventies, early eighties, where we basically settled for four coal-fired power plants. Uh, rather than 20-some in southeast Montana. We denied them the water. And the water was delegated to remain in stream in the Yellowstone because it was the only supply that they had uh, for, to cool all of that or to support coal gasification. And that was huge. You know, Can you imagine we're dealing with 20-some out there now instead of four? The big adversary there was the Montana Power Company. At the time, the first environmental contact I had with corporate America was uh, over the Hedleston Mining District at the head of the Blackfoot River. And that was Anaconda Company. Now, you remember my friend Bill, who got me into Kiwanis. While all these battles are going on, he occasionally was the lobbyist for the Anaconda Company. Oh, really? In the state legislature. And so we would continue huh. our personal relationship, and we didn't let it tarnish that. Yeah. And we did at times uh, you know, be on uh, opposite sides of issues over and over. In fact, at, during those combative years... People labeled us the odd couple <laughs> because they knew we liked each other. Who was Jack know?
0: Lemon? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know which was which.
1: Walter Matthau. Over oh, here. yeah. It's, yeah, <laughs> right. But the reality is I outlived Anaconda Company. Yeah. I outlived Montana Power Company. They both took shots at me. <laughs> But I outlived them both.
2: And unfortunately, you outlived
1: Bill. And f- unfortunately, outlived Bill. Yeah. But he was, you know, the good kind of buddy. And yeah.
2: we have to make more friends in odd places. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's like what you were saying. It's people. It's, <laughs> it's the resource is easy, you know, so to speak, to, to manage. It's learning to work with people. That's that's the challenge.
2: And the people will determine yep. whether or not it's going to be effective. In fact, I think that's one of those quotes that old TR said. It will be the people ultimately in those locales that determine yep. what, what happens to these lands.
0: Yep. And we're seeing that a- across North America with... Bear hunting in Canada and bear management in New Jersey. I mean, people are dictating how the resource is managed for good and for bad. And uh, yeah, if we don't have those friends across the aisle, so to speak, then we are we're missing out on opportunities. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, and if we bifurcate ourselves on ideological lines, well they don't you know, invariably they will not fit the local condition or the local circumstance right and so we've got to be flexible and hopefully encourage politicians to adopt some level of flexibility based on what the people want
0: yeah yeah all right so are you guys ready for this amazing transition of topics here okay jim you talked about people taking shots at you. I understand you wrote a book called My Best Shot. <laughs> see How about w- that? See what I did there? <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about that book because it just it recently was released, and um, I have a copy of it. I'm really excited to read it. I was it.
1: trying to keep the discussion clean without being self-promoted.
0: <laughs> well, that's why I'm here is, is to uh, give you that opportunity. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about your book.
1: Well, the book is basically a biographical piece that goes from story to story about my finding and then l- participating in living the Montana conservation ethic. I couldn't have written that without having become a student of Montana history to realize how many people pr- that preceded me uh, That gave me the chance to take my shot. And how satisfied I was with the fact that I took the best shot I could. Yeah. And uh, so that's where the title came from.
0: It's a great title.
1: And it goes through a series of stories and stuff about uh, the various major issues like the Missouri River dams and the... uh, Development of the coal field and the protection of the Yellowstone River water, and then to, uh, again, in the context that I just took a turn at that. You know, if it hadn't been for Dan Bailey and Bob Anderson and a handful of others, that dam might have been already been there. And we would not have had a chance to uh, address it as protecting the river from its depletion by the energy industry during the midst of an energy crisis where the president called for maximum utilization of energy, domestic energy resources. All the federal agencies were piling on with plans to develop energy resources, and at the fishing game, I had the chance to send three guys into the Paradise Valley because I knew it would lead to the Allen Spur Dam debate. And so we responded to the president, to Congress, and all the federal bureaucracies with three on-the-ground field biologists to tell us the truth about that place biologically. And once we had the truth, then we could stand and boldly before power I guess yeah. eventually we wound up with 20 some people spread out over the full length of the Yellowstone River studying everything from its aqua- aquatic invertebrates to the eagles and ultimately prevail that's one of the stories in the book <laughs> that's cool <Yeah. laughs> along with a handful of others yeah. and I try to spice it up with little vignettes of interesting mm-hmm. things that occurred along the way
0: It's very cool. Yeah. I will, um, in the notes for the show, I'll make sure to include a link so people can go get a copy of that if they're interested. Um, I just really appreciate you two taking the time to sit down with me. This has been a a lot of fun for me. I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit better. I mean, I've known you for several years now, but I feel like I learned a lot about you (laughs) during this conversation. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Any parting words? (laughs) No. No. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> Jim, you have anything yeah. you wanna you wanna share with us before we? Well, sign I think off? the only thing I
1: would share is for conservation activists of today to, to keep notes to, to to anticipate the day when they have to write about their opportunity and r- their response to the opportunity to take their best shot well, well thank you
0: thank you for uh having me into your home i really appreciate this as we wrap up I just our first house guest really <laughs> that's awesome yes i think he is i just want to recognize you real quick uh for the work that you two have done and say thank you for from myself and for everyone else out there that gets uh-huh. to go enjoy the resources that you two helped to protect um as i was out hunting yesterday i was thinking about that being in spotted dog and Um, just realizing that it was people like you that made it possible for me to be out there. And so I wanted to recognize you and say thank you and uh, really appreciate you guys having me in your home.
2: Oh, guess what? You get to carry it on. All right.
0: Well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, go leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow Urban to Country on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and sign up for the Urban to Country newsletter on our website. In closing, I wanted to quote Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau said, All good things are wild and free. Please remember to do your part to make sure our wild places and our wild creatures are here for generations to come. And until next time, go out there and make life epic.